Uh, one thing I want to add to to that announcement to uh, in regards to the men who are the the current nominees and who are considering this, there there was a lot of prayer and discernment that went into this, and uh, the three men who who are moving forward in this during that discernment phase, I'll mention, and this is something that I really respected about all three of them was it was one of the phrases I heard from all three of them was, I just don't know that I'm I'm that guy yet. And it came from a real place of humility. Of I, I don't know if I, if I know enough of the Bible, if, if I'm at that place spiritually. And so this, this was not a, sure, sounds great, let's just move forward. It was very much a, is God really calling me into this? And at the end of that phase, they've, they've arrived at, yes, we believe that God is calling us to move forward. And here's one of the unique things about our process in this is that... Um, you, when you see those introspection forms, which you can get a hard copy here this morning, um, it'll be posted on our website later on today. But when you see that, what, what that is, in a lot of ways, it talks a lot of personal and family background, a lot of faith and beliefs. These men who are nominees, they're not saying, okay, I guess you can look and, and judge me. All right? They're asking you to. That's a big deal. Because... Maybe you're like me where I've walked into church before and I'm thinking, I really don't want people to know what's going on in my life right now. These men are saying, please look, please, and discern whether or not I should be one of your shepherds. So um, for, for those men and for those three men and also for Derek and Wade, thank you. We are really grateful for the amount of vulnerability and transparency that you are putting on display in, uh, in a variety of ways. So uh, like we said, this month is a time. Have conversations. Ask good questions. And make sure that all those are done in a spirit of love that we do. That being said, I want to start off with uh, kind of going back to where we started in song and in scripture this morning. Started off with a passage from Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 46. Um, and it's a fascinating song because it's beautiful, right? If you were here, we sang the Magnificat. How beautiful of a song is that? Um, I, I've, I've heard that arrangement for, I don't know, 10, 15 years now. And just a beautiful song that's put together that we get to sing. But it's a fascinating point when Mary sings it. See, Mary sings this song after she finds out that she's expecting Jesus. After the angel has met with her and appeared to her. At the angel has appeared to Joseph as well, and they sing this beautiful song, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of his servant. I will be blessed forever by him. Holy is his name. Beautiful, right? What, what mother wouldn't sing that song when they hear that they're expecting a child, let alone the Savior of the world? But see, Mary and Joseph were probably in a different space. Because Mary and Joseph were not actually married yet at this point, and, and Jewish law actually taught that if Mary were found out to be pregnant and Joseph was not the biological father, by law, Joseph could not only have her punished, he could have her stoned, as in brought in front of the entire town or community, put in the middle of a circle, and people, the entire community, is the executioner. They all throw stones at her until she dies. And so there's this possibility where Mary could die, but also if Joseph is seen as someone who says, nah, I'm going to let it go, then that would be something where people would look down on Joseph in that space too. So they're risking 
shame. They're, they're risking life. They're risking so much of who they are and how they were viewed in the community. And both of them know this. And yet, while Mary has to walk around for all those months carrying Jesus within her, knowing if this doesn't go the right way in the public eye, it could cost me and my child our lives. And yet, we read, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. What a beautiful expression of of people who said, in this space where we might feel like we need to fake it in front of our religious community. Sound familiar for anyone who's ever stepped foot in church before? And they said, we are going to show joy in the midst of that. Where does that even come from? As powerful as that might be. Well, before we dive into choosing joy, let's distinguish two things. Because they get confused quite often. What is the difference between joy and happiness. How might we tell the difference? I'll stop and mention a, uh, a Facebook group that I'm a part of, which sounds weird to say. It's, it's this social media platform that like mainly old people use, okay? So it's like Snapchat, but for old people. And by old, I mean 25 and older. So um, there's this Facebook group that's called the Compadres, And the Compadres Facebook group is predominantly um, ministers, most of whom are are part of the Church of Christ. Some used to be a ministry but stayed a part of the group. There's other uh, like uh, theologians, Bible professors. And uh, Ashley had to be a part of it as a part of a job she used to have. And she would tell me like, man, Compadres was interesting today. And they have some really fascinating conversations. Sometimes it's conflicts, debates, mostly about things that no one cares about. And every once in a while, there's something decent. I never post on it, ever. But I, every once in a while, I am fascinated by what people will write on it. And it just so happened this week that there was another minister who was preparing a sermon on joy. And he wrote on the Facebook group uh, just a question. It said, how would you simply describe joy to people? Now, there's one guy who posts more than anybody else on this, and he's one of my favorite professors that I ever got to have while I was in seminary. His name's John Mark Hicks. He's written a number of good things. He just retired this past spring uh, from Lipscomb University after about 20 years, and the man knows more theology than I could hope to learn in three lifetimes. He's absolutely brilliant. And so when asked, how would you simply define joy, he wrote, he wrote this in his response, and, and I, want, I want it to show just how much variety takes place. Anytime someone writes a question like that, there's usually seven or eight answers. John Marks was first, and he said this, Joy is the deep peace and contentment rooted in communion with God of blessedness. Otherwise, you're just happy due to circumstances and unhappy in other circumstances. Sadness, happiness, they shift with circumstances And appropriately so. Joy, however, is a constant. That means happiness does not puff us up and sadness does not send us into despair. How beautiful of a definition. And to show just how much variety takes place on these conversations, John Mark responds, and it was, how do you describe joy in a simple term? John Mark gives this. The very next guy below him just commented one word, bacon. That was it. 
And so joy means a lot of things to a lot of different people, right? Here, here's one element of joy that, that I really love uh, that, that was described so well uh, about five, six years ago, I think. It was in a Disney Pixar movie. And, and it's a movie that it's not my favorite. My favorite all time is Up. I loved Up. But there's another movie that people have said it was not appreciated enough, and it's become even more appreciated since it coming out, um, and it's called Inside Out. Who else seen Inside Out? Disney Pixar movie. So good, right? Such a good movie. Um, and, and hey, fun fact, uh, summer of next year, Inside Out 2 is going to be released, and they're going to cover a number of good things. But um, for, if you haven't seen it, I'll give you the quick little rundown of, of Inside Out. So Inside Out, it's about the emotions that exist within a, an 11-year-old girl named Riley. Now, these five emotions are the ones that are focused in on. These five emotions are who make Riley, Riley. So the character in the dead center, the tallest one, um, her name is Joy. And Riley is someone who carries a lot of joy. And so joy, and, and the way the movie works is whenever Riley is responding to something with emotion, that uh, that emotion is at the controls. They're pressing the buttons, they're pulling stuff. So Riley is joyful in general. So joy is usually working the controls, but sometimes it's not necessary. So if Riley is coming across um, something that could hurt her or make her fall uh, in the far left, uh, fear shows up and takes controls. Watch out, be careful. And whenever something doesn't go Riley's way and she gets angry or upset, then anger shows up and takes control, all right? And uh, at the far right, if there's a, a food that Riley doesn't like that's put on her plate, disgust shows up and saves Riley from uh, a lot of social harm. But then finally, the, the tension that exists in this movie in a lot of ways is between joy and the blue character right next to her, sadness. Because joy throughout the movie, and Riley's not really the main character, it's really joy. And there's this tension between joy and sadness. And I found it really fascinating that joy was named joy instead of happiness. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as I read up more on the movie, the writers intentionally did this. On purpose, they did not want the main character to be happiness. And when interviewed about it, they said, because happiness, it just depends on the day. Sometimes we have really good days and we're happy. Then other times we have really sad days. But sometimes sad days can still produce a level of joy. And so what, uh, without giving up a whole lot of spoilers, something that exists in terms of the tension that takes place within the movie is Joy thinking, I have to be in the controls because Riley has to be happy. Riley has to be joyful. But there's moments that take place in Riley's life that are just simply sad. And so sadness comes in to try to take controls, and Riley continuously pushes Joy away. Joy, don't touch anything. Don't mess with anything. And Joy keeps coming back again and again and again. But you can tell throughout the movie that Riley is struggling with this because she's going through an experience at the age of 11 her parents move. That's not much of a spoiler. It happens like five minutes in. Uh, but their parents move. She moves. And that's hard for an 11-year-old kid. New friends, uh, new world, new climate, new city. She had to adjust. And there was a loss for her. And that was sad. Joy didn't know how to handle it. But sadness did. And that was a lot of the tension of joy allowing sadness to show up. And it doesn't mean that joy disappears. 
It means that joy is allowing sadness to have a role in this. If you have not seen this movie, I highly recommend it because one of the top messages of it is it's okay to be sad. In a world where we constantly have to be happy and ecstatic and elated and energetic, there are some seasons of life that are just sad. It doesn't mean you're not joyful. It means that that is something that you're just simply experiencing at the time. Let me tell you a group that that was told constantly about about the need for being joyful. It was this church in this city called Thessalonica. Paul writes two letters to the Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians go through some really hard stuff. Paul is super proud of them. Like throughout his letters, he talks about how great of a job they're doing in living out the gospel in, in their lives, in their daily lives. But it was hard. Because in Thessalonica, they were ridiculed, they were persecuted, they were mocked, they were hit. Some of them were thrown into prison for their faith. Some were probably killed eventually. And so this was a difficult thing to be. And Paul talked about, don't stir up riots. You're not there to to kick up the dirt. You're not there to make a big mess. You are here to live quiet, simple, peaceful lives. And part of the reason he told them this was, you're going to be persecuted anyway. So... You're not leaving and abandoning God. You're just kind of trying to protect yourself along the way. And he wrote, this is the three shortest verses, or the three, three shortest verse stretch in all of the New Testament. Do we have that verse that we can put up? Paul just says, and this is toward the very end of 1 Thessalonians, starting in verse 16. This is 16, 17, 18. Verse 16, rejoice always. Some of your verses might say, be joyful always. Verse uh, 17, pray continually. And then verse 18, it's way longer than the other two. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul is trying to say to them, I know it's hard. I know you're in a season where people are coming after you on account of your faith. You are being punished for doing exactly what we're calling you to do. And yet my command to you is be joyful. In this time and in this space. He's inviting them, regardless of how bad it gets, to choose a life of joy. And so I was faced with this question as I'm putting this lesson together. And this, was, this is something that I, I, I feel is really, really important. If we were to say, let's choose joy. Okay, great. So let's ask this question then. Do we have the next slide up? What is the difference... How is the joy of a Christian or Christ follower, how is that different from the joy of anyone else? If you are someone who is joyful, how does that separate you from an atheist? How does that separate you from an agnostic? They can be joyful. They're joyful people, right? I mean, they have good days as well. And and you probably know some here think they're super joyful people, maybe sometimes more joyful than Christians. So what's the difference? How do we distinguish? I came up with a lot of different possible answers. You know the top one, though? It was how we view death. That's the number one way we can tell joyous Christians the difference between us, a joy in a Christian and a joy in anybody else. It's how we view death. There are two books that, that I've read that have really rocked me. I've read them over the last year or so. The first one is by an ACU psychology professor by the name of Richard Beck. 
And Richard Beck wrote this book called The Slavery of Death. And in it, it's, he just basically starts out with a thesis and just rolls from there. But it starts with this. He said, I believe that all sin is driven by the human fear of death. The things we do in our life that are wrong, it's because our lives to one level or another feel threatened by death. And so we take precautions to cover that up. If we talk about greed, it's because we want to accrue and accrue and accrue. So when death comes, we'll have things that can fight it. If we are in, if we are in need of something and we don't have the money to get it, we might be willing to steal in order to provide it so that we can prolong our lives. So many things that we do in our life, when our healthy eating habits, our exercise, it's to keep from death. He even goes as far to say, as even when we get later on in life, we begin concerning ourselves with things like legacy and inheritance and what our children and grandchildren are doing. And he said, here's why. He said, as a psychology professor, he said, I believe the reason we do this is because we've accepted our physical death, but we think a piece of us will still live on in these legacies and these children and these things we leave behind. And so he talks about this driving force behind so many of the things we do has everything to do with death. Theologian Andrew Root wrote a book called The Promise of Despair. And it the beginning of each chapter talks about a conversation that he has with his four-year-old son about death. When his son was asking, what is death like? Tell me about it. You know, at that age, kids start asking these kinds of questions, half of which we have no idea how to answer. And so here's this brilliant PhD theologian who starts doing his, giving it his best shot. He describes death as a monster. Now, at first I was like, that's a terrible idea. But the truth is, it exists. Death is a monster. And, and he said, because I'm thinking, you just gave your kids so many nightmares for the rest of his life. And, but he talks about death being a monster. But he gives the monster characteristics. And Root describes this. He said, here's the worst part of death. The very worst. It's not death itself. It's not. He said, the very worst part, the sting that hurts the most of death is that death is a separator. Death separates us from those whom we love. It separates us from the things that we've accrued that we value, and it separates us from legacy or being known or remembered. Death separates us from all those things. And so he tells his son that death is a monster. And in one of the chapters to start off, Root's son asked him this. He said, Dad, if, if death is a monster and death lives life like we do, could death ever fall in love? <laughs> I'm glad that I was not the father in this situation. I had no idea. But, but Root said this. He said, yes, death will fall in love. And when death, this is the gospel in a, in a nutshell. He said, death will fall in love. And when death falls in love, love will overcome death. And death will be defeated. If that's not the gospel in a nutshell, I'm not sure what is. And so, so much of what they talked about, and if we're going to be Christians who show how we are different from the rest of the world, not better, just different people, it's not living a life of no sin. That'd be nice, 
but only one person ever pulled that off, and we've, we've been worshiping him all morning. And there's been so many other areas where what if we don't sin? What if we do a lot of nice things for people? What if we go to other countries and, and we give money to orphanages and, and we do and we decide to actually pet kitty cats this year instead of kick them? You know, there's a lot of different options, right? A number of things that we could do, of ways that would be good, but what Root and Beck both suggest is what if when death knocks on our door, not necessarily our own death, if you're thinking, I, I don't think I'm going to die for a long time, I, I'm, I'm in pretty good health right now, but you probably know someone who may be close to death, that that day might be finally coming. And they said, when that happens, can you look at death on your own account or the account of someone else and have joy? So when we read in Philippians 2 where Paul writes while he's in prison, he said, I don't know if I want to keep living or I don't know if I want to die. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you let me live, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. And if you kill me, I'm going to be with Jesus. I literally can't lose. Can we go into life, live life, and then go into death even more excited than when we entered into life in the first place? When we, when we go to funerals, can we have a celebrate? I love it when people call it a celebration of life because that was really good. You know what's even better? They're with Jesus now. What a beautiful experience. And Beck and Root both say, this is how you know of joy in a Christian. It's not the Christian who runs and flees from death, but that when death finally comes, that that kiss of death is also met with an embrace and an understanding that that day was always going to come. I actually thought about starting this sermon off by looking everyone in the eye and saying, you are going to die. But I, I didn't think you'd like me that much anymore, so I changed my mind. But that, that is a realization that we all live with, that our culture has told us, do everything you can to never die, which is absurd. The greatest doctor who ever lived, the greatest physician, not counting Jesus, they've all failed everybody dies at some point. And so what if we were people who said, I'm going to embrace this moment because as joyous as it is when life enters into earth, how much more joyous is when death tries to take it from us and we say, go ahead because the grave has no hold on me. <laughs> so what does that look like? About three years ago, um, we were mid-pandemic, right? It was August of 2020. Uh, a lot of churches have started having the conversation, hey, are we ready to start meeting in person again, or do we need to stay online? You know, um, and I, I don't know exactly where Cinco Ranch was at the time. I was working at a church at, uh, in San Antonio called Northwest. But during that time, I was asked to preach. And it was our final online only. Our church has said, we're going to start meeting again. And it was my final time to do an online preaching. So we weren't meeting at all. We pre-recorded it. We did the sermon. And then we posted it online. Every church did it. Cinco did too. But for mine, I, I came across a passage of, uh, it was toward the end of Matthew. And it was Jesus kind of talking about how he was embracing his coming crucifixion. Jesus knew it was coming. He said, guys, this has to happen. This has to but it's going to be special after it happens. There's going to be some really, there's going to be some stuff you're not even ready for. And there was a woman at our church named Jonna, Jonna Dories. Jonna had been a part of the worship team that was there at the church. 
And Jonna was, uh, she was someone that we would describe as blunt. <laughs> Jonna always spoke her mind. And if it was something really great, she'd say, that was wonderful. And if it was something terrible, she'd say, that was terrible. And she was very honest. We were never wondering what Jonna was thinking. But Jonna, uh, three or four years before this, had had a really long bout with ovarian cancer. And after enough chemo and treatment, uh, she, she was in remission. And for the next two or three years, she celebrated, hey, I have life and I have, you know, I, I'm doing better. And in early 2020, right before the announcement of the pandemic, Jonna came to the leadership and said, I, I need your prayers, I need your love. My cancer's back. And they said it's way more aggressive this time. Around the time of, uh, as, as the pandemic hits and as it grows, they become more and more concerned about doing chemo and seeing as aggressive as it was. John and her husband, Billy, did, made the decision to just work on, uh, on comfort. And she said, we, we've decided that God's calling me. It's my time. And so early August, uh, she's just at home. And I, I know that I'm preaching. So I, I give her a call. I said, Jonna, I know this might be heavy for you. Would you be willing to sit down and have a conversation with me on camera? And we put that as part of the worship time on Sunday. She said, yeah, I, I think I'll have, I, I don't have a lot of energy right now. If, if you've ever dealt with cancer, I know someone who has energy levels is a real battle that you have to fight. She said, I think I have the energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah come on, you, you can come over. So we sit down and we have this conversation. And toward the end of it, I, I talked to her about, you know, this passage I'm covering. What does it mean to you? How's life been for you? And, and I said, Jonna, we don't know what the coming days are. God, God works miracles. We do believe that. But what are you wanting in this season of your life? And she said, Casey, I don't expect God to, <laughs> to save me from death. Everybody else has died before me. Why should I live? She said, look, I, I'm not in much pain. I don't have a lot of energy, but... Yeah, here's the truth. As much as I'm going to miss my husband and my children and my grandchildren, as much as I'm going to miss my friends from work and my church family and all my relatives and friends, Casey, do you understand? Just here in a few days, I get to feel the embrace of Jesus Christ wrapped around me. I am closer to that than everyone I know. And so, am I going to miss people? Yeah, I will. But I've been wanting to be with Jesus my entire life, and I'm so close. It's coming. I am so excited to walk into the gates of heaven with arm in arm with my Savior. And I can't help, but in the face of death that I've been told to be afraid of my whole life, I don't know how to explain it other than I have this sense of joy. What if as we go through life and as we come across friends and family members who might be dealing with death, if we reminded them that we serve a Savior who already went down deep into the waters of death and came out of it on the other side and said, here I am. I'm ready to receive you. So I'm going to invite our prayer team to head to the back. And praise team, you guys can come on out too. We're going to do something slightly different during our prayer time though. You see, 
And so many times during the prayer time, you're invited to go to the back and, and you're invited to go and share. And oftentimes they'd say, if you need help, if you're, you're struggling with something and you need prayers to, to get better, to get well, then I want you to know like, that they're still back there and they're happy to receive you and pray with you during that time. But I'm going to invite you to do something slightly different this morning. If you want to do that, you can, but how cool would it be if we have what? One, two, three, seven, I believe. Seven people in the back, eight now. What if... As we go to the back, you said, you know what, here's something that's brought me joy this year. James chapter 1, the brother of Jesus writes, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials or persecutions of all time, at all times. So if you are facing things, if it's been a hard year, then feel free to go to the back and say, here's what is bringing me joy. Uh, prayer team, if you see someone who's sitting down and you're like, you know what, I'm really joyful that that person's in my life, go hunt them down. All right? It might be awkward, but go hunt those people down and say, I am so grateful that you're in my life. And instead of saying, here's all these tears and, and life's hard, it is. But y'all, the grave is overcome. And this Christ entering in to this world that we have, as exciting as that is, what's greater than the birth of Jesus was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So if nothing else, we read from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. And if you want to experience the joy of the Lord and it become your strength, I invite you to head to the back as we stand and sing this next song.